and I thought I would also offer something of a, of a gift to you all today. And so here are uh, the top 10 dad jokes of all time. Now, I don't know whether or not these are actually the top 10 dad jokes, but I did get it from the source of all sophisticated writing, which is Good Housekeeping uh, magazine online. <laughs> what did the horse say after it tripped? Help, I've fallen and I can't giddy up. <laughs> what do you call a well-balanced horse? Stable. What do you call an angry carrot? <laughs> a steamed veggie. <laughs> I'm a dad, so I like that. Um, what do polar bears keep their money? In a snowbank. How do you make an egg roll? You push it. <laughs> what would bears be without bees? Ears. Some of you are going to figure that one out on the way home today. You're going to be like, oh, I get it. What do you call a pile of cats? A meow train. Or a meowton. A meowton. Mountain, right, yeah. Anyway, why do cows wear bells? Because their horns don't work. Why did the bicycle fall over? Because it was too tired. And then this is my favorite, it's the last one. What, what did the triangle say to the circle? You're pointless. <laughs> that one is actually good, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's pretty good. You know, I, I have been gifted uh, by my father for a lot of different reasons, but one of the most significant is my dad actually never tells dad jokes. Uh, sadly for my children, they have not been so fortunate. I'm a pastor, and so you've just got to do what you can. So... To help us get into our text today, I wanted to share a few fun facts with you. So check this out. This past Sunday, more Christian believers attended church in China than in all of so-called Christian Europe, which is stunning because in 1970, there were no legally functioning churches in China at all. More Anglicans attended church this last Sunday in Tanzania than did Anglicans in Britain and Canada combined and Episcopalians in the U.S. And the number of Anglicans in Nigeria is several times that of Anglicans in Tanzania. This last Sunday, more Presbyterians were at church in Ghana than in Scotland. This last Sunday, more members of Brazil's Assembly of God uh, then were more, there were more members at Brazil's Assembly of God than the two largest Pentecostal denominations in the United States, Assemblies of God and Church of Christ combined. Uh, more people, get this, last Sunday attended the Yoido Full Gospel Church pastored by Yonggi Choi in Seoul, Korea than attended all the churches in significant denominations like the CRC, the ECC, and the PCA. This last Sunday, more Roman Catholics worshiped in more languages than at any other time in their previous history. Get this, this last Sunday, half of the churchgoers in London were African or African-Caribbean. And the largest congregation in Europe is in Kiev, which is pastored by a Nigerian Pentecostal. And think about this, this last week, at least 15,000 foreign missionaries were working hard to evangelize Great Britain, and most of these missionaries were from Africa and Asia. And the largest Jesuit order is found in India. You know, I got, that, I got all that information from a book that was written by a Notre Dame scholar named Mark Knoll, and the title of the book is called The, World, the New Shape of World Christianity. 
And in the book, he discusses kind of what has been happening in the world globally with respect to the gospel and how the gospel is truly becoming more and more a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multilingual faith that is reaching literally to the ends of the earth. And that is really, really good news. So today we're going to be continuing on in our series that we began last week entitled, To the Ends of the Earth. And what we're doing is we're talking together uh, about the book of Acts and how this book gives us really a model for what it looks like to take the gospel into the world as followers of Jesus. In other words, as you look at the church in the first century, one of the things that is just so striking about it is how much traction it gained and what a compelling force they were in their own day, in their own culture, and in their own place. People were entering into the church in droves. And so one of the questions we're asking asking is, what was their secret sauce? I mean, what was it that made this group of Christians so compelling and such a powerful evangelistic presence in their day? And we're asking this for very practical reasons. We want to know what it would take for us in our own day to be a more compelling evangelistic force in, in, in our culture, in our world. And so we're turning to the book of Acts to help us answer that question. Well, Last week, uh, kind of the the header uh, that we were looking at was we were talking together about the evangelistic vision of Jesus given to us in Acts 1. And what I want to do today is I want to look at the evangelistic desire that is revealed to us from the Spirit in Acts chapter 2. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn with me there. If you don't, you'll see the text on the screen. But uh, look where the text begins. It says this, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So we looked at last week how Jesus just uh, a little over a week before had gathered his disciples together and he told them to wait in Jerusalem until they were endued with power from on high and then they would go out and they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and all the way to the uttermost parts of the earth. And that group of disciples listened, and they gathered together in an upper room, and together they prayed, and they waited on God, and they sought God. And they they waited on Monday, and Tuesday, and Wednesday, all the way up until the day of Pentecost. And on this day, it was a special day because it was one of the three great feasts on the Jewish calendar. And on the feast of Passover, just, or Pe- Pentecost, just like on Passover and uh, the Feast of Booze, uh, people from all over would, would pour into the city of Jerusalem and the city would swell. And, and there would be pilgrims coming from all different nations and different cultures and they would be speaking different languages. And it was one of those moments where, you know, you'd go into the city and it was just this multicultural, multilingual experience and you'd hear different languages and people People would be wearing different outfits, and there'd just be hordes of people all over, all over. They'd be flooding into the city. But then inside the upper room, the disciples were still there waiting, and they were praying, just as Jesus had told them to. And so while the masses are gathering outside, uh, the, the disciples are gathered together in one accord, praying and seeking God inside, and that's when it happens. And suddenly... There came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. 
and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And at this point, the action moves incredibly quick, and there is a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and there are, there's, there's tongues that are like fire. And there's wind, and there's fire, and we're wondering, uh, what, do, what is this all about? And, and what are we to make of, of, of this? And what are we supposed to envision? I, I think what I've always envisioned as I think about this is almost like uh, little human candles with a little flame above their head. And then the wind comes on, and it blows from one candle to the next, and it kind of spreads throughout. And, and, and we wonder, what are we supposed to make of this phenomenon? But notice in the text, it doesn't say that there literally was wind and fire. Instead, what does it say? It said there was a sound that was like the wind, and there were tongues that were like fire. And so the wind and the fire are symbols, they're metaphors of, to, to capture uh, to put into words what is happening in this dramatic and this powerful encounter with the true and living God when the Spirit of God walks into the room. And so to, to capture what's happening, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the author draws upon the, the language, the metaphors of wind and fire. And you know, to the original hearers, those words wind and fire were latent with meaning. Throughout the Old Testament, when God would manifest himself palpably and visibly before his people, it would often be in wind and in fire. And so, for example, in the opening chapter of Genesis, the very first image we get of the Spirit of God, it says that the earth was formless and void, and there was darkness over the face of the deep, and the Spirit, the wind, the breath of God was hovering over the waters. And then in the ancient prophet Ezekiel, uh, the prophet is shown this valley of dry bones. And then God speaks, prophesy to the bones and prophesy to the wind and tell the wind to, to blow over the bones. And the wind blew and, and God and the wind animates and gives life to Ezekiel's valley of dry bones. And of course, Jesus told Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so too is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, wind is wild, isn't it? Wind is untamable energy. Wind is mysterious. It is beyond human control. Have you ever tried to control the wind? Have you ever tried to harness the wind? I remember several years ago when I was living in Long Beach, there was a guy, I was a youth pastor, and there was a guy at my church. I didn't think he liked me very much, but one day he invited me uh, to go kiteboarding, and he offered to pay for it. And I was like, oh, maybe he does like me. And I, I'd always seen the kiteboarders, and I thought, you know, I could do this. You know, I surf, and, and I know waves. And, and so we went down there, and, you know, the, the, board, the board wasn't the problem. The, the, the problem for me was the kite, because the kite was enormous, and the wind was blowing some 27 knots, and I picked that thing up, and it just basically drug me all across the sand in Long Beach, and I was like, this guy doesn't like me. He's trying to kill me. <laughs> but wind is uncontainable, unmanageable. It is uncontrollable power. And so wind is the renewing power of God. It is the ability of God to bring life from death. And what is 
fire. Well, fire in the Old Testament is equally pregnant with meaning. God puts Abraham to sleep and appears to him in a flaming torch of fire in the deep darkness. God, of course, appears to Moses in a, in a bush that burns with fire. He guided the children of Israel in a cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. And so fire is a symbol of the palpable, the experience, the near presence of God. And of course, fire is also uncontrollable, untamable, uncontainable energy. And fire is purifying and revealing and consuming. Fire can illuminate the night sky and it can warm the chill in the bones, but don't get too close because you might get burned. And so when God walks in the room on Pentecost Sunday, like a cup that is filled with liquid, they are overwhelmed and they're filled with the very presence of the uncontrollable, uncontainable, unmanageable, powerful, life-giving presence of the true and living God. And friends, what happens on this day? When God walks in the room, when the Spirit of God floods and fills his people, what is the result? I mean, something, something unexpected and unanticipated happens with all of this untamable, warm, and purifying and beautiful power. Look at what happens in the next verse. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the presence of God floods the waiting group of disciples. And unexpected, they were not expecting this, they were not asking for this. All of a sudden, they're overcome, and they, begun, they began to speak in other languages. You know, this is curious, because, you know, we know from reading the scriptures that Pentecost was a unique an unrepeatable moment in salvation history. This was the day that the ancient prophets spoke of in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah and in Isaiah when the spirit of God would be poured out in a very fresh way on all flesh. And this would be something new. A, a, a door would open in salvation history where God's presence would be open and available to all who would come to him. Jesus said, you must wait for this. And Jesus said, the helper will come. He said, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. I will not leave you powerless. I will fill you with my spirit. And now here, God finally arrives. Uh, the, the power of the age to come, the kingdoms of the heaven has broken in in a fresh way. The spirit has been poured out from on high. And what is the first thing that God does when he finally arrives in this palpable, present way with his people? Listen, God enables them to speak in languages they did not already know. And that's interesting. Now, I know this passage is often associated with uh, a branch of Pentecostal uh, Christianity and the modern phenomenon of speaking in tongues. I remember when I was growing up, my, my, you know, going to my grandma's church, and she was a Pentecostal, and they would sometimes have this hum of tongues, you know, speaking in tongues, you know, and I would get all weirded out, and my grandma would say things like, don't worry, Josh, you know, this is, they're just speaking in heavenly tongues. I'm like, well, why can't they just speak in English, you know? <laughs> That's weird, you know? I don't like that, you know? And sometimes we associate what happens on Pentecost 
with the modern phenomenon of speaking in tongues, but, but listen, what the Spirit enables is not them to speak in the tongues of angels, but in the tongues of men. These are not heavenly languages. These are earthly languages. Because look what happens next. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered. Why? They're like, what is going on? And why were... Because each of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They're bewildered because they've come from all over the world. They speak different languages, and they're like, what's going on? I could hear it. And have you ever been in a foreign country and been in a, you know, it's like one of those towns where it's like nobody speaks English, and, and you're just, you're like, you, you're, and then all of a sudden you hear it, and you're like, oh, talk to me, you know? And, and, and there's something comforting about hearing your own heart language, your mother tongue. This is what they're hearing. And and they were amazed, and they were astonished, saying, are not all of those speaking Galileans? And the sense was, uh, Galilee was a backwoods part of the Roman Empire. It was assumed that these were uneducated Galilee, kind of like backwoodsy people from the deep south, and of course, you know, they don't know, you know, like, this is kind of the, the prejudice. And they're like, are they, aren't they Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And listen, it wasn't just that there was a couple different languages that were being spoken. No, he describes this earlier as people came in, pilgrims came in from every nation under heaven, from the east, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, and from the north, uh, those from Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Pamphylia, and, and those from, 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 from the south, from Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and the Arabians, and from the west, visitors from Rome and Cretans. You know, the commentators point out this. They say, look, the different regions, uh, when you lay these out on a map, cover literally tens of thousands of miles. They basically cover the whole known world from Luke's vantage point. And so look, Luke is at pains to express, <laughs> listen, on this day, when the Spirit of God walks into the room, Luke is at pains to express the international, multilingual, multicultural, multinational nature of the crowd. And so he refers to them again in verse 5 as every nation under heaven. And this multilingual, multicultural gathering of Jewish pilgrims and converts to Judaism, traveling from all different nations, are bewildered. Why? because each one of them is hearing them speak in his own native language. And they're just asking, how did you know? How did they know? How are they speaking? And uh, they're asking questions, and, 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 and they hear them speaking, and what are they speaking to them about? They say, we hear them telling in our own language the mighty works of God. Well, which mighty works are they speaking about? Well, it must be the mighty works that Peter is going to speak of later in the chapter, which are the mighty works that God has done through Jesus of Nazareth. Or as Peter says, 
Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. He healed the sick. He cleansed the lepers. He welcomed outcasts. He forgave sinners. You yourselves know that you saw this. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So what are they hearing in their own language? They are hearing the good news of what God, the creator of all things, has accomplished and enacted in the person of Jesus. And look at their response. They are amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Now, of course, not everyone's impressed. Uh, There's always the mockers. Some were mocking, saying, oh, they're just drunk. You know, they're filled with new wine. But I love Peter's response. He says, look, standing up with the 11, he lifted up his voice and addressed them. He says, men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. He's like, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. You know, people in Los Angeles don't even get drunk at nine o'clock in the morning. He's just like, it's early. He says, no, this is not that. Instead, he says, this is that which was uttered through the ancient prophet Joel. And then from Joel, he draws on these words. And in the last days, it shall be, declares God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. In other words, there is going to be a move of the Spirit of God that will cross gender and socioeconomic and racial and cultural boundaries. God will move among his people in a fresh way. And he says, this prophetic vision is being fulfilled right before your eyes. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes the great and magnificent day. He refers here to cosmic signs because this is not just some local happening. This moment, what we are reading about and witnessing means that a new day has dawned for cosmic history. This is the beginning of the final and glorious end of the cosmos that we're headed towards. New creation walked out of the tomb on Easter Sunday. God's healing rule has been launched. The gift of God's renewing and healing love and life and presence is now on offer to all people. And the evidence is this. The spirit of God has been poured out on all flesh. It is for all people or at least all those who sense their need and who are willing to call out to God with their need. Because he says this, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now what I want to do now is I just want to pause and I just want to stand back and I want to ask this question. What does this text reveal about the will and the desire of the spirit when it comes to evangelism? And I think that this text is revealing to us at least three things. Number one, uh, I, I think what it's revealing to us is this. Listen, when the Spirit of God is poured out on the day of Pentecost, 
We, we cannot emphasize this enough. Note well what happens. The Spirit of God enables them to speak the gospel in a foreign language to a diversity of people drawn from a variety of cultures and nations. In other words, listen, on the day of Pentecost, when the gospel is first preached, when the good news about Jesus goes out to the world from the disciples on this day, it does not come uh, to one distinct culture that gets a privileged hearing. And there are at least three implications I want to draw out from this regarding the Spirit's will for the gospel to go out. Number one is this. Number one, the Spirit wills the gospel to go out into a diversity of cultures and languages. You know, the the day of Pentecost, again, this was unasked for. It was not what they were wanting, but it's what the Spirit of God came and moved in them and did. He enabled them to speak in other languages. I mean, just think about this. You know, some some of you have had this experience before. You know, you're, you're approaching a Spanish or a French midterm, and you forgot to study. And so you're just praying, God, help me learn French. Help me learn Spanish. God, give me the gift of languages. They're not asking for that. This is what the Spirit, by his own desire, not by the design of the disciples, is doing. And it reveals to us that the Spirit wills the gospel to go out into a diversity of cultures and languages. Church historian Justo Gonzalez puts it like this. He says, the first translator of the gospel is the Holy Spirit. The first translator of the gospel is the Holy Spirit. And a church that claims to have the Holy Spirit must be willing to follow that lead. In other words, to move out into new cultures and languages and places with this incredibly good news and bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, someone might say, look, this is the problem I have with Christianity. I mean, some, some of you are enthusiastic about that. Some of you are just like, what? Like, this is, this is the problem I have with Christianity. Look, in a post-colonial world, like, is it really a good idea to encourage people to go out on mission and to convert foreign cultures? And isn't that, I mean, isn't, isn't there something culturally imperialistic about that? And colonial, you're just going to go out and foist your culture and your beliefs and your ideologies on other people. And isn't that what's destroying little indigenous people groups? And aren't we just importing American ideology of capitalism and of uh, free market principles and, and, you know, consumerism and market-driven ideology and all of this? Like, like come on, <laughs> like someone says. So what do we say to that objection? And I want to make three simple responses. First, I just want to say this. Look, the way the church needs to respond to that kind of accusation of cultural imperialism is with honesty and grief. Because the the history of Christian mission is checkered. Let's just be honest about that. You know, and, and certainly there have been insensitive, arrogant, 
uh, Westerners who have gone into foreign cultures and have have unthinkingly gone in and, and just disrespected the culture and have not acknowledged what God had already been doing there or maybe what God wanted to do there. And so, of course, this has been a problem. And where it is a problem, it needs to be named, it needs to be grieved over, and it needs to be repented from. The church should be, an organi- it should be a living organism that engages in the practice of repentance. But on the other hand, can I just push back on the colonialist argument against Christian mission and just make three simple observations. And the first observation is this. Maybe this doesn't go without saying, but Christianity did not originate in America. You know, there are a lot of great things that originated in America, or maybe it's debatable whether or not these are great things. Coke, McDonald's, uh, Disney, Disney, I mean, come on. Uh, The iPhone, jazz and blues, praise God. And of course, there's been not great stuff that's been originated on American soil, like country music. It's spread to the other parts. (laughs) Just kidding, Sean. There's a lot of stuff that has originated on American soil and has spread to the ends of the earth. But listen, Christianity is not one of those things. Mark Knoll, again, Notre Dame, Uh, historian put it like this, the impression that Christianity in its essence is either European or American is simply false. Christianity began as Jewish, and before it was European, it was North African and Syrian and Egyptian and Indian. And while indeed in recent history it has been American, it has also been Chilean and Albanian and Fijian and Chinese. The gospel belongs to everyone in every culture. It belongs to no one in any one culture in particular. So number one, the gospel didn't originate on American soil. Number two, Americans are not actually responsible for the dramatic expansion of global Christianity. Now, just think about this stat. It's because I just quote this one because it's the one that I have in my head. But in, in the last hundred years... The African continent went from about 9% Christian in 1900 to 60% Christian in the year 2000. And the question comes, who is responsible for that radical growth? And listen, the answer is not Western European, and it is not American missionaries. It is true that Americans have oftentimes started beachheads, and missionaries have gone out and started new movements But by and large, when you go to, like I spent uh, on two different occasions some time in a little West African nation called Burkina Faso, there was almost no American missionaries there. The people who were trying to convert other people there were not Americans, they were Burkina Bay people trying to bring the gospel in the Moray tongue to their own people in their own culture. Listen, the actual movement from beachhead to functioning Christian community is almost always the work of local Christians, Korean revivalists, African prophets, Indian preachers and bishops, Latin American priests, Pentecostal church planters, South Sea Islander chiefs and teachers, imprisoned Chinese apostles. These are the human agents that over the last century and a half have transformed Christianity from a Western to a genuinely world religion. Thirdly, Christianity is taking root, consider this, not because of Western imperialist or because of American ideology, because everybody in the rest of the world wants Americans to come. It is taking root because it is changing lives in a diversity of cultures. 
You know, we can suggest all sorts of reasons why Africans and Asians have adopted Christianity, whether political, social, cultural, but one too obvious explanation is simply that individuals in these cultures came to believe in Jesus, and Jesus has set them free. He has transformed them. You know, Laman Sane, who is an African scholar who's written at length about this issue, uh, he's taught at Harvard and Yale, and at one point in one of his books, he just says, look, he says, I'm getting tired of the complaints that I'm hearing from my academic, secular American peers about how colonial Christianity is. He says, what are you saying, that Christianity belongs to Westerners and not to Africans? He, said, he, says, he says, look, in, in African culture, he says, he says we have a, a reverence for the sacred, and we believe in demonic dark forces. And he says, the secular elite at the prestigious universities mocked our reverence for the sacred. But Christianity and Jesus did not. And he writes this. He said, Africans sensed in their hearts that Jesus did not mock their respect for the sacred or their clamor for an invincible savior. And so they beat their sacred drums for him until the stars skipped and danced in the skies. And after that dance, the stars weren't little anymore. Christianity helped Africans to become renewed Africans, not remade Europeans. And so listen, what I'm arguing is that it is the Spirit of God who has gone out ahead of the church into all cultures and languages with the gospel. And a church that is faithful will follow the Spirit's lead. But secondly, the Spirit will not, not only wills the gospel to go out into a diversity of cultures and languages. Get this, on the day, the day of Pentecost, we learn that the Spirit wills that the gospel be expressed in a diversity of cultures and languages. You know, in multi-ethnic cities where the gospel first traveled, a new thing emerged that hitherto had not yet been seen in human history. It was a multi-ethnic community composed of people from radically different social classes. The New Testament historian N.T. Wright put it like this. He said, in the ancient Near East, the idea of a single community across traditional boundaries of culture, gender, and ethnic social groupings was unheard of. In fact, unthinkable. The vibrant, excited group of Christ followers were doing something radically countercultural. Nobody was trying to live at a house where all the old walls were being taken down. And yet the early church was forming these multi-ethnic, uh, racially diverse, socioeconomically diverse uh, communities around the ancient empire. But this wasn't just true of what was happening. This new kind of community was actually doing something incredibly important for those first Jewish believers in the Messiah. When they started to interact with other people who were expressing their faith in different ways, it challenged them and it helped them to grow. When they began to share all things in common, and listen, wherever the gospel travels, it will have the same effect when it begins to work itself out in communities. Issa McCauley, professor at Wheaton University, in his brilliant book called Reading While Black, put it like this. God's vision for his people is not for the elimination of ethnicity to form a colorblind uniformity of sanctified blandness. You should take a picture of that quote. That's good. 
God's vision for his people is not for the elimination of ethnicity to form a colorblind uniformity of sanctified blandness. Instead, God sees the creation of a community of different cultures united by faith in his son as a manifestation of the expansive nature of his grace. Which simply means this. Like, we have so much and can learn so much from Christians who come from other social locations who have other cultural experiences, who speak other languages, who've lived in different kind of political societies or whatnot. In fact, I would go so far as to say that, um, you know, as the Spirit wills the gospel to be expressed in a diversity of cultures and languages, in our cultural moment, when so many American Christians have been so immersed and so co-opted by the toxic, myopic, polarized 21st century American political categories and the faces that represent them, we could do well to stand back and learn from the global church how to pray, how to suffer, how to live without so much affluence, how to trust God, and how to actually live among people who believe things different from us. We need the global church. We need multi-ethnic churches. We need Christians from all different sorts of places. And it's not just difference language and, and ra- racially difference. You know, in, in the, just, you know, in our own recent past, we had the Jesus movement. I don't know if anybody has seen the Jesus Revolution movement, movie. But, like, when the gospel took root among hippies, the hippies did not become traditionalist Christians. They became hippie Christians. And you know what? The traditionalists had something to learn from how the gospel took root and grew and flourished in that community. And of course, the way in which the gospel took root and grew within uh, among black slave communities back in the early part of American history, the gospel and the Christianity that emerged there had something dramatic to teach the white church. We just need to learn from each other. We need each other. We need diverse expressions of Christianity. And so the spirit wills the gospel to move into a host culture, to land there, to begin to grow, and to begin to be expressed in the culture and language of those peoples. I mean, goodness, Jesus revolution. I mean, that's where Christian rock and roll came from. (laughs) I mean, the hippies gave us modern worship. Some of you want to give it back. (laughs) Finally, the spirit wills the gospel to bring renewal within a diversity of cultures and languages. While surely it is the case that the fact that on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit enabled the gospel to be preached in so many beautifully different languages says something about God's affirming the diversity that he wills for his creation that is reflected in the diversity of everything we see in the world. God loves diversity. But make no mistake, there are aspects of every culture, of course, including American culture, that need to be critically evaluated, and there are idols embedded within every culture that need to be repented from, and God needs to bring freedom and renewal within those cultures. And that's why at the very end of this, at the very end of this uh, sermon that, that Peter ends up preaching, the people are like, what should we do? And he says, repent, turn, 
There's stuff you need to name that is dysfunctional, it's broken, it's sinful, it's fallen. It needs to be turned away from and abandoned within your culture. And your culture needs to be renewed by the dramatic healing, forgiving, saving love of God on full display in the self-sacrificing, glad-giving love of Jesus. Lord Jesus, we come to you as our Savior, as our King, as our Lord, as the one who rescues and forgives and redeems and renews. And we ask, oh God, that even today as we come to this table, that you would bring about some repentance in our own hearts from different idolatries that we have embraced. And God, would you reaffirm that we belong to you, that we are sons and daughters of the King, that we have been welcomed to your table. Would your spirit now come and work among us now? And would you fill us and would you enable us, God, to go out from this place to be good news speakers in all of those places where you might lead us? And we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.